me to the book of Colossians. If you have your Bible with you, it's right after the book of Philippians. We're going to be continuing our series, Christ in Us, the Hope of Glory. We took a few weeks off. We had the winter storm of about an inch and a half of snow, so we thought there might be lower turnout, so we decided to take a breather from Colossians there. We had some sickness, but we are now back in Colossians, continuing our series. We're still in the very beginning of chapter 1. Remember, just as a reminder, Colossians, along with Hebrews, is probably the most Christ-centered book of the New Testament. Christ just emerges again and again and again explicitly in the text. So in this book that's written about the same time as the book of Ephesians and Philemon, Paul is very intentionally painting for us and describing theologically Christ in all of His richness. Christ in all of His beauty. Christ in all of His glory. So that's what we're going to see as we continue in this book. So look with me now at chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 3 this morning. Hear God's holy and authoritative Word. Colossians 1, verse 3. We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. God's holy word, he writes truth upon our hearts. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, we want to experience in your word today Christ in us, the hope of glory. We want to have our spirits stirred. We want to have our spirits awakened to the reality of what it means to look upon Christ and to entrust ourselves to Him. Lord, we recognize that this is a gift from You. Lord, that You are the One who first opened our eyes, that You are the One who first drew us to Yourself. And so, Lord, we come to You again now this morning asking through the power of Your Spirit in the preaching of Your Word, You would continue the good work that You began in us. And Lord, because of Your Son, Jesus Christ, who we see displayed for us in the pages of this letter, we ask these things in great confidence, knowing that in Jesus, it is Your good pleasure to give us all things. And so it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, most of you know I attended a small liberal arts college up in Minnesota. And because it was a liberal arts college, they took great pleasure in making sure that all the students, no matter what course of study you were in, got a good exposure to the humanities. So even if you were a physics major, you were going to take certain classes that exposed you to history and literature and those things. Even, even the chemistry majors, as they were working through those equations and whatnot, had to take classes that, that taught them how to write and express themselves. And so every student freshman year had to take a class called college writing. And as the class sounds, it was about college writing. It was about teaching students how to write well, how to express themselves. It wasn't the hardest course in the world, but it was important. It was important for, for each of the students getting a foundation they would use in all their future classes, for writing essays in other classes for writing research papers, for writing their senior thesis, that class would serve as a foundation. So every student took it. Well, I had a good friend who was taking it the same semester as me. We were in different sections, had different professors. But let's just say he wasn't the greatest writer in the world. And so it was the week of the final exams, and so it was college writing. We didn't have an exam. We had to turn in a final paper, and he was just in a total panic. He had this we'll call it a paper, that he needed help on it. So he kind of called me up, desperate. I actually think he asked Hannah for help as well. We came over to his dorm room, and he explained to us the topic he was trying to write on. He walked us through his arguments, what he was trying to do, what he was trying to say. And then he handed over the paper to us and said, can you help me? Sure, we'll try and help you. <laughs> and then we started reading. 
we'll generously call it a paper, but it was a total mess. He had already told me what the paper was about, and as I was reading it, I was getting confused about what it was about. So you think like on the macro level of the paper, there was if there was an outline in his head, it had failed to get into the paper itself. You couldn't tell what his thesis was. You couldn't tell where it was going. When it ended, you couldn't tell that it had concluded. You were just happy there were no more words to read. And that was just kind of the big picture. For some reason, he had chosen to handwrite the draft. And not only was he not an author, he, he was not one who was particularly gifted in fine motor skills. So his handwriting was just horrendous. And you're trying to read what he's written, and then he was the most atrocious speller you've ever seen. So you're trying to decipher, like, what? Is that word? <laughs> Can you what what word are you saying? And then he would mispronounce the word to you, and he's like, "Well, that's probably why you misspelled it. You're mispronouncing it." It was just a mess. Run on sentence after run on sentence. He he misused commas. He he misplaced commas. He forgot to use commas. It was painful. Thankfully, my buddy had a sense of humor. So after we ripped him, and, and he ripped into himself, and then we all laughed. I think we invited some people from the floor in to come read the paper with him. And we all had a good laugh. We spent the night rewriting this paper that was really ten pages of run-on sentence after run-on sentence after run-on sentence. Sometimes, though, run-on sentences aren't owing to bad grammar. Sometimes run-on sentences are owing to pastoral passion. Sometimes run-on sentences are owing to theological precision. And that's what we see this morning in Colossians chapter 1. We're going to focus on verses 3 to 4. We're going to spend several weeks in this first chapter of Colossians. And we're going to spend several weeks there because it's packed with instruction for us. It shows us Paul at his pastoral best and his most passionate which is why it's filled with run-on sentences. Not because Paul can't write well, but because there's this sense of energy just coursing through the text. Energy as he relates to the Colossians, the significance of Christ. As he relates to them, the power of the Gospel at work in their hearts and in their midst. In just verses 3-23, to 23, 21 verses, Paul uses only four sentences. 21 verses and four sentences. And so because of that, we're going to have to break up the text in some interesting ways. Not because the thought is completed, but because there's so much going on theologically in those thoughts that sometimes a sentence is loaded with so much stuff, we need to, to break it up into multiple messages. Actually, as I was preparing this message it kept getting reduced and reduced and reduced. Initially, it was going to cover Paul's thanksgiving, faith in Christ, the love that the Colossians were expressing, and the hope we have in heaven. But as I got into it and realized all that was going on, I, I lopped off the hope in heaven to save that for the next week. And then I lopped off the love we have for others to save that for the next week. So this morning, we're going to consider his thanksgiving he has for the Colossians and where that thanksgiving springs from, the first part of where the thanksgiving springs from. The faith that he has heard about in them. So look with me again at verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you share, that you have for all the saints. Paul starts out, this, this ma- one, of the, one of the massive run sentences, by saying, I am prayerfully thankful for you. I am full of prayerful thanksgiving for you, Christians in Colossae. We kind of do the same thing sometimes around Thanksgiving, right? We have this holiday that's supposed to be set aside specifically to offer thanks. It's not just about huge turkeys and ingesting massive amounts of tryptophan and then entering into like a semi-sleep-induced coma as we watch the Lions lose for like the 30th year in a row on Thanksgiving. It's a time we set aside to give thanks. Maybe you have the tradition, like I've seen, where everyone gathers around the table, and one of the things you do when you break bread is you say, we're going to go around the table and all say what we're thankful for. You guys done that? And people express, I'm thankful for my job. 
Thankful for this food. Thankful for the home that we, we have. Most of the time, someone will say, I'm thankful for the people here, these loved ones. We express our thanksgiving, right? But it's incomplete. If we do all that, offering thanksgiving, and don't offer it in the right direction. We see that from Paul here. It's not simply enough to be thankful. True thanksgiving is an offering of thanks to the giver of the gifts. That's what he's doing here in Colossians. He signals that exact idea for us by using a very intentional term when he says he gives thanks. There's a couple words he could use in the Greek to say he's thankful, but he uses one that whenever he uses it in his letters, it specifically designates that he is giving thanks and that that thanks is directed to God. That the thanks is directed not to us, not to others, not to himself, not thank me, not thank you, it's thank God. It's not a generic thanks. It's not make me feel better about myself, thanks. No, it's worshipful. It's filled with gratitude. There's a sense of of praise behind it for the God who saves. Even more than that, it's thanksgiving to God because of His generosity to others. Paul's not thanking God for anything he's done in Paul's life. He's thanking God for what he's done in the lives of other people. You get just this sense of gratitude and praise welling up to God even as Paul writes it. He's thankful for the Colossians. He's writing to them because he is thankful. And even as he writes it, there's this sense in the letter, even as I'm writing this, there's renewed thanksgiving to God as I think of you and as I pray for you. Not, however, because Paul has been the beneficiary, but because the Colossians, these people in a minor city, in a relatively obscure region of the Lycus Valley, have become partakers of the grace of God. One of the benefits of meditating on a passage of meditating on a book of the Bible, is that there's things that begin to jump out to you that that don't stand out upon first reading. So if you remember back at the beginning of the series, I challenged us once a week, try and read through the chapter of Colossians that we're in. And then one other time during the week, try and read through the entire book of Colossians in one sitting. It'll take you five minutes to read the chapter. It'll maybe take you 20 minutes to read the entire book. As I've been doing that, there's something that leapt off the page to me about the fifth time through chapter 1. It's, in verse 3, I skimmed right over it. The phrase says, Colossians 1.3, we always thank God. In the midst of contemplating thanksgiving, I realized Paul's thanking God, not the Colossians. Then I realized Paul's thanking God for what he's done in the Colossians, not what he's done in Paul. And then I realized it's not just Paul thanking God. We thank God. It's encouraging to know somebody's praying for you, right? I find that encouraging. How much more so to know that a group is praying. That a group of people are gathering. It's probably the entire list of co-workers that he lists at the end of the letter. And he tells them they always, this group always or continually gives thanks whenever they pray for the Colossians. So there's this sense, not only is it not just Paul, it's a group of people that are praying for him. It's not just Paul and a group of people that have prayed once. It's Paul and a group of people gathering to pray continually, regularly for this church. So think about that. The image of a habitual gathering of believers. Paul and his colleagues. Tychicus and Onesimus. Aristarchus and Mark. Justice and Epaphras, someone they know. Luke and Demas. These co-workers of Paul. This is kind of like the A-team of missions in the early church. And the Colossians here, those men, those men are praying for us. Those men are regularly lifting us up before God, before the Father. That convicts me and it stirs me up. It convicts me because there is such a selflessness to their prayers. Aside from Epaphras, 
not a single one of that group has ever met any of the people in the Colossians church. Think about that. They're meeting habitually to pray for a bunch of people they have never met. And there's no Facebook to go like look online and see a picture. So at least, well, we can at least put a, a face to these anonymous people we're praying for. It doesn't exist. There's no, no Twitter account. He doesn't have a photograph of the church plant group all smiling with Epaphras on the one-year anniversary that they, that they hold up. And these people have never met them. Never known them. And yet they diligently pray for them. Again and again, thanksgiving to God for His grace to others. I struggle to maintain thanksgiving to God for His grace to me. I don't know about you guys. Much less for His grace to people I've never met. I received a a little postcard in the mail a couple months ago. Very simple postcard with a note written on the back and a verse. And it was from another eldership in Sovereign Grace. All it was was highlighting and saying, we wanted you to know that in our elder meeting this week, we stopped and we prayed for you. And we prayed for Providence Community Church. Be encouraged to know that we have lifted you up before the King of Kings. I got that and and I paused going through all the junk mail I get. And it was a blessing. Here are a group of elders, most of whom I don't know, who have never been to Providence, who don't know any of you, who stopped and went out of their way to pray for us. To pray that the Gospel would become more real in our midst. What an exhortation for us to pray. To pray for others. And then to inform others that we've prayed for them. Send a text. Send an email. Here's something novel. Write a note. And get one of those things called a stamp. And put it on there. And mail it to them. I can't tell you how many times I've been strengthened in the work of ministry. How wobbly knees have been fortified in the fight of faith because I find out that someone, somewhere, a brother or sister is praying on my behalf. Paul gives us an example to emulate here. And it's an incredible example of gospel partnership. It's not just this this local idea of praying. It's not just praying for other people in a single church, although that's highly commendable. It's not just praying for other churches in a single city. Again, highly commendable. It's this extra-local partnership. Paul, remember where he is right now? How does he end the letter of Colossians? Remember me in my chains. He's writing from a Roman prison. And yet he's fully invested in the spiritual well-being of the Colossians. Think of what that entails. If there's ever a guy that kind of has an excuse for narrowing down his prayer list or, or moving himself to the top of the prayer list, it's maybe the guy that's, that's chained in Rome, that's facing death because he proclaims the name of Christ in a time and a culture when it's scandalous to do so. When they can take your property for loving Christ. When they can take your job for loving Christ. When they can take your life for standing by Christ. And yet he prays for them. Now, here's a guy, he describes in another letter that he feels a weight of all the churches. And you're kind of like, yeah. I mean, the guy's planted multiple churches at this point. He's got all these churches and these people that he knows personally that he's seen come to faith. And he has the weight for them. He feels pastoral burden for them. He feels a responsibility to shepherd them. And so he prays for them and he writes these letters to them as an expression of it. And here's this guy in prison with all these other churches he's planted, people he feels a burden to shepherd, and he's giving time to the Colossians. Not because it's a strategic church, some really fancy church in a really big city, but because he's seen the grace of the living God. And he knows that it's at work in their midst. Every reason 
to narrow his gaze. And yet he widens it. That's gospel partnership. Last week we had Mark Prater here, Executive Director of Sovereign Grace, and he shared with us the mission of hope abounding. He wasn't just walking us through a really well-polished presentation. I was on a phone call with Mark probably about nine months ago just discussing what theme do we need to put before our pastors, before our churches? And I know it wasn't special. There was other guys on the phone call and he had like multiple phone calls with guys from regions. But here's a guy leading us and asking, how should we be praying? What, what theme should we be setting in front of people? And the theme that emerged was hope. And in preparation for the pastor's conference, he mentioned this in passing last Sunday. I ran into him before the conference had started. We were both down in the little workout area of the resort we were in. And he told me, you know, I, I'm just filled with faith for this conference. He said, I've, I've got a roll call, a list of all the pastors and the pastor's wives that are coming. And I just felt led to pray for each pastor and, and their spouse. And I felt led to pray for those churches. And I've been doing that for the weeks. And as I've done it, my heart is just filled with faith for these. And you can just see in talking to Mark, as we're sitting there by the treadmills, here is a man filled with faith and expectation that God is going to move because he's committed himself to pray, to offer thanksgiving to God for many people that he doesn't even know. I want us to express that kind of prayerfulness, that kind of gospel partnership with the Wilsons over in China. Out of sight, but not out of mind, not out of our prayers with Ferris, our brother in Pakistan. With these orphans we're going to be introduced to soon in Bolivia. With other churches in this city that we would pray that not just at Providence, but at every church where Christ has proclaimed the Gospel would move forward, that, that faithfulness would stand, that truth would reign, that conversions would be made. When your wives come back from the conference, guys, if you have a wife that went, First of all, ask them how it went. Don't just like open the door, shove the kids in their face, and go running down the road screaming. Don't just say, they're yours, and, and go run away to a coffee shop for three hours. The temptation's going to be there. I, I feel it right now. I, I was feeling it. I actually sent a text to Hannah going off the notes here. Sent her a text last night, and I said, you might return home, and we'll be just a family of three. <laughs> I've got two I'm thinking of sending off to foster care. I was kidding. It was a joke. But it was that sort of level of stress where it's just like reminded, how does she do this? What, when, she, when your wife comes home, you're not off duty. Help her to transition back in. And then when the kids are to bed, ask her how it went. But ask her this. Tell me about the women you met. What did you learn about these churches that are in our region? commit with her. She has this fresh experience of worshiping the living God with fellow saints touched by the grace of God and ask her, how can we continue to pray for these women and the churches they represent? Paul then goes on to give us the reason for that sort of thanksgiving. In verse 4 he says, we thank God always, constantly. Why? Verse 4, since we heard of your faith, your faith, Colossians, whom we've never met, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints. That His work in the Colossian church has produced three essential virtues in the Christian life. Three cardinal virtues. Paul often places them next to each other in his texts. Faith, love, and hope. We're going to consider faith for the remainder of this morning. We're going to save hope, which is the foundation we'll see of faith and love. And we're going to save the way the Gospel empowers all of those for next week. So, the remainder of this morning, let's consider that cardinal virtue of the Christian life, faith. And not just faith, as Paul says, faith in Christ Jesus. He starts with faith for a really obvious reason. Faith is the wellspring of everything else we experience in the Christian life. Faith is where all other virtues come from. It's through the gift of faith that the graces of salvation are appropriated. 
His attention to the faith of the Colossians helps us explain the unusual wording we see there. What does he say to them? He says, since we've heard of your faith. And right before that, he says, he's thankful to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What's so so unfamiliar about that, right? Well, it's unfamiliar for how Paul uses it. Typically, when he thanks God, he would say, thanks to God and Jesus Christ. So here he phrases it, thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, why does he do that? Here's what I think he's doing. He's shining a spotlight on the glorious object of our faith, while at the same time highlighting the source of our faith. Let's take those in reverse order. So first, the source of our faith. Recognize, again, Paul isn't thanking the Colossians for their faith. He's not saying, I'm so thankful to God for you Colossians. Because you believe. He's saying, I'm thankful to God. It's so subtle. But it's packed with significance. Paul has heard about their faith. And he celebrates their response to the Gospel message. And he turns all praise Godward. Both for the faith itself and the fruit of that faith. Brotherly love and hope that it produces. It's a profoundly God-centered thanksgiving. Worked for a summer with a a missions organization, sort of a service organization called YouthWorks on an Indian reservation. We had this thing we'd do every night. It was with with high school-age students. And we'd have our, our club time, which meant we'd share stories and have some skits and sing some songs, and I would share a message. And we had this time we carved out where we said it was time for yay gods. And we explained to the kids at the beginning of the week, when we do the yay gods, you, you kind of just have a look out and you see a place where you see something special happening. You know, this is kind of the flowery language we used. When you see something special happening, you can say yay God. And, and you give a yay God. And we tried to like direct it. It's like the yay God. So when you see something happen, you, you give a yay God. You praise God. Well, invariably, it would like everyone wants to get in on the yay God action. There's like warm fuzzies going around the room. And the students start devolving the yay gods into yay Susie! Yay Julie! <laughs> and and pretty quickly, God gets left out of the picture. Yay you! Yay me! That's not what Paul does. He, he has a reason to say, yay Colossians! But he doesn't. Thank God! Yay God! which should elicit a very particular response from the Colossians. Humble gratitude. Paul is teaching them by praising God for their faith. He's neutering the temptation of their hearts to take pride in their belief. And oh, what a common, subtle temptation that is, isn't it? We treat the gift of faith as a new ground for our own boasting. Something owing totally to the grace of God becomes a new, shiny source of pride. And it seems like such a spiritual and holy one, doesn't it? This pride manifests itself in how we interact with unbelievers. If after receiving the gift of faith, we begin to disassociate ourselves from them. If we start to revile them and how we talk about them. If we start to look down our noses at them. Maybe even mock them. Wonder to ourselves or to our friends, shaking our heads, how can they believe that? How can they believe those things? Do you hear the prideful positioning of yourself? Because I don't believe that! Because I'm so much smarter than them! No. Because I'm a recipient of the grace of God that I don't deserve. That's what Paul is showing them. So Paul is teaching them. He's showing us the expression of pride that fails to recognize the source of faith. God's 
unmerited, gracious activity. But when we remember that source, pride gets displaced by what Paul displays. Godward gratitude. We always thank God. Whenever we think of our own faith, we always thank God. Whenever I recount the faith of a maturing brother or sister in Christ, we always thank God whenever someone is born again. We always thank God. The source of grace and faith. And Paul's thanksgiving also acknowledges the object of faith. Not just the source, but its object. In fact, that's what faith is by its very definition. Faith is a transitive verb, which means it's a verb that always takes a direct object. It's a verb that's always pointing to something. It's not just raw faith in whatever. Not just raw faith in you fill in the blank, whatever you like. That's what is in impo- it's not, that's not what's important. It's not faith by itself that's a virtue. You ever thought about that? Faith by itself is not a virtue. Only a certain kind of faith. Think of it this way. The flappers, you familiar with that term? The roaring 20s. The flappers, these ladies that wore these kind of weird dresses and funky hats that we don't think look particularly flattering or attractive, but in that day it was all the rage of fashion. Keep that in mind as you think about what's fashionable and all the rage today. <laughs> Someday, a century from now, people are going to look at us and think, why did you wear all that neon? <laughs> we actually just thought about eight years ago, about the early 90s. <laughs> well, the flappers and the men on Wall Street had faith, this enormous faith in the progress of man. There's faith that you can invest your money on Wall Street and it is just exploding with growth. The growth is exponential. You can go and live and dream and just go do whatever you want, whatever your heart desires. Just place your faith here. But they realized quickly in the crash of 1929, the object of faith matters. When the object of that faith, a, a surging economy in post-World War I America, when that faith, the object of it, proved futile, their confidence is shattered. You see it from the stories of this, this rash of suicides that affects these magnets of Wall Street, these men who appeared to have everything and have millions, and suddenly with the crash, it's gone. And they end their lives. Because the object of their faith was worthless. Paul is not impressed with faith. Paul celebrates their faith, verse 4 says, in Christ Jesus. The object of faith determines its value, determines its trustworthiness. And nothing, Paul shows us, is more rock solid than Jesus. The latter parts of Colossians 1 detail in magnificence this cosmic Christ. You want to talk about big C Christology? It's Colossians 1. It shows us Christ as the Lord of creation. It shows us Christ as the Lord of redemption. Paul is not just demonstrating the superiority of Christ in those verses. He's demonstrating the impregnable supremacy of faith in that Christ. Not just that Christ is magnificent, not just that Christ is rock solid, but that faith in that Christ is magnificent, is praiseworthy, will not be put to shame. So what does faith in Christ Jesus look like? What does faith in that object look like? Well, first, faith in Christ Jesus rests in His life, death, and resurrection. Faith in Christ Jesus rests in His life, death, and resurrection as the only way to attain salvation. Part of the reason why this message kept getting truncated, you know, from faith, love, and hope, and the power of the Gospel, to faith, love, and hope, to faith and love, and then just faith. 
Because I started to realize we can fall into the temptation to think, oh, we know about faith. Everybody's familiar with faith. We need to be reminded about faith. We live in a world that doesn't operate according to the notions of faith. First thing we see about faith is that no work saves us from eternal punishment. No record of personal holiness will ever outweigh our disobedience. Faith rests its head at the foot of the cross. Faith plants its feet securely at the mouth of an empty tomb. Faith is believing that Christ is who He claimed to be. Faith is believing that He will accomplish what He has proclaimed to do. What He's promised to do. Faith is then expecting this of Him and living in light of it. Faith is believing He is who He says He is. Faith is believing that what He promised to do, He will do. And then faith is saying, in light of all that, I'm going to live like it's true. I love how Spurgeon puts this. Our faith is a person. The Gospel that we have to preach is a person. And go wherever we may, we have something solid and tangible to preach, for our Gospel is a person. If you ask the twelve apostles in their day, what do you believe in? They would not have stopped to go around with a long sermon, but they would have pointed to their Master, and they would have said, we believe Him. But what are your doctrines? There, they stand incarnate. But what is your practice? There stands our practice. He, Christ Jesus, is our example. What then do you believe? Hear the glorious answer of the Apostle Paul. We preach Christ crucified. Our creed, our body of divinity, our whole theology is summed up in the person of Jesus Christ. Faith believes in Christ. Crucified, risen, and reigning. Second, Faith in Christ believes in the authentic Christ. Faith in Christ believes in the authentic Christ. Here's what I mean. Look at what Paul says, just a few verses down. We'll look at it in more detail in the coming weeks. He speaks of the the hope that they have, that this hope grounds their faith. And this is what he says of that hope, of this, of that hope you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. Of this hope you've heard before, where? In the word of truth, the gospel. The Colossians, this church Paul's never been to, they're they're facing false teaching. People who are coming in and whispering divergent doctrines. Whispering different ideas. Legalism and, and, and things to add to Christ and who He is. Paul says, It's not enough just to claim you believe in Christ Jesus. You have to believe in the authentic Christ Jesus. The one founded on the word of truth. The one founded on the gospel. Not a Christ fashioned according to their own whims. Not a Christ that's just a mirror of of cultural preferences. Not a Christ molded to resemble personal idols entrenched kingdoms that we're unwilling to give up. Now listen, there are plenty of of good Midwestern people. We are in the heart of the Midwest. There are a lot of good good Midwestern people. We talk about Minnesota nice and Minnesota. You can just call it Midwest nice. You're probably one of those good, nice Midwestern people. I am. I grew up in that way. Good Midwestern people don't mind talk about God. Right? Good Midwestern people might even talk about Jesus themselves. Good Midwestern people, when you mention that you went to church, will probably respond like, oh, good for you. I grew up going to church, or I go to such and such a church every once in a while. Commendable that you go to church. But what God are they referring to? To make it more personal, Paul would have us ask, what Jesus 
do you invoke? Is it the cosmic Christ of Colossians 1? Hear how Paul describes the Christ of faith. The cosmic Christ is the image of the invisible God. The cosmic Christ is the firstborn of creation. Christ is the active agent of creation. Christ is the Lord of creation. Christ is the glorious purpose behind creation. Christ is the power that maintains creation. Christ is the rightful owner of creation. Is the Christ you claim the redeeming Christ of Colossians? Paul describes this redeeming Christ as the head of His body, the church, as the firstborn of the dead, as the reconciler of an alienated universe, as the bloody peace offering for sin. There is an infinite difference. There is an infinite distance between faith in the Christ construed by our culture the safe Christ of the American dream. The greedy Christ of unrestrained consumerism. The weak, limp-wristed Christ of pluralism. The judgmentless Christ of postmodernism. There is a great chasm between that pseudo-Christ and the Christ of Colossians. The authentic Christ, the one revealed in the word of truth that Paul writes about inspired by the Spirit of Christ, that Christ is absolutely different from Jesus Jr. that your neighbors might put their hope in. Absolutely different from the scaled-down Christ of Judeo-Christian America. Which leads us to the third aspect of faith in Christ. Faith in Christ Jesus is faith in His Lordship. The language Paul uses doesn't just refer to Christ as the object of our faith. Peter O'Brien, a great New Testament scholar, puts it this way. What Paul is referring to as well is the sphere in which faith lives and acts. Not just the object it looks at, but the sphere in which it does all of that. It means this. Paul rejoices in their faith because of what he's heard about it. Their way of life gives evidence to the fact that they understand the enormity of what it means to believe in Jesus. This wasn't a little decision I made at summer camp. This wasn't a decision one day when I felt really guilty and I came down and I prayed a prayer and I had my my conscience sort of assuaged and then I went out and lived exactly like I did before. Not that kind of faith. A faith that recognized this is a life-changing decision. This is an alternating of my course in a different direction. It's a recognition that they are under Christ's Lordship. Because they have been incorporated into Him. What's what's the name of the series? Christ in us, the hope of glory. When the cosmic Christ, when the Christ of creation, when the Christ of redemption is in you, it changes everything about you. Look back at how Paul addresses them in Colossians 1-2. To the saints, remember it's not saying holy ones, it's saying those who've been set apart, to those set apart and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. You, you see the spatial dimensions? You are in Christ. Where? In Christ. Even while you're in Colossae. Their faith in Christ, by this faith, they have now been made a part of Christ. And so they've been placed under His rule. Paul recognizes and they recognize they've been placed within His authority. Their future is the same as His future because by faith, they are His. Now consider the implications of that kind of faith.
a faith centered on one glorious object, the crucified, risen, and reigning Jesus Christ. A faith entrusted to the authentic Christ of Scriptures, not one of our own devices. And a faith submitted to the full Lordship of Christ over all of our life, all of our future, extending over all the universe. This is faith, as we'll see next week, filled with the power of the Gospel. Faith filled with such power that Paul can pray with confidence that one day they will be presented mature before Christ because this kind of faith directed at Christ Jesus, at the authentic Christ, recognizing His Lordship, has the power to transform lives. That those who were once alienated and hostile in mind are no longer that way. They're no longer alienated. They've been brought into fellowship with this God. And because by the power of the Gospel they've been brought into fellowship, this faith will create change. He can tell them later in the letter, this faith allows me to command you to put off these sinful activities and to, in hope and faith, put on these holy things. And he can say that not in a legalistic manner because he knows the power of God that is ours as believers in the cosmic Christ, in the Christ of redemption. Faith that changes who we are. Faith that changes how we live, how we operate, what we love, what we do in this world until He returns. Faith that doesn't shrink back from proclaiming the excellence of Christ crucified to the exclusion of everything else. Because this faith has seen His beauty. Because this faith has tasted the satisfaction of His living water. It's faith like that of the imprisoned Apostle Paul that doesn't hedge its bets. Faith that is all in on Jesus and utterly lost without Him. Faith that isn't afraid to love in a way that leaves us vulnerable in a world afflicted by the fall. To love as faith calls us to means your flank is going to be exposed. faith that isn't afraid to stand boldly on the name of Jesus and, dis- and declare His exclusive authority to reign. His exclusive authority to redeem. His exclusive right to demand our full obedience in all of life. I love the way A.W. Tozer puts this. Pseudo-faith always arranges a way out to serve in, in case God fails it. Real faith knows only one way and gladly allows itself to be stripped of any second way or makeshift substitutes. For true faith, it is either God or total collapse. And not since Adam, this is good news, first stood up on the earth, has God failed a single man or woman who trusted Him. That's the truth of the risen and reigning Christ. So in conclusion, I want you to think about this. What is God calling you to live out? How is He calling you to live out this faith? To walk in light of this faith? Or in the words of Paul in Colossians 1.23, how might we continue in the faith? Stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the Gospel. So in what ways is God asking you to step out into the world? To step back into your homes? To step into your workplace on Monday with a recklessly abandoned confidence? Let me suggest some ways. With the faith that Christ reigns. And so confident that He has claimed not just our hearts, but our lives with faith that Christ is Lord over all, and so confident that He promises nothing can transpire outside of His will. Live boldly. Take risks. Not a hair on your head can perish outside of the Father's will. Faith that Christ is faithful. 
even when we falter. And so confident that we can boast in Him in our victories and we can still boast in Him in our setbacks. What good news, right? Faith that Christ is God's exclusive provision of hope. It's not a stock market. It's not a promotion. It's not a spouse. It's not a child. But it is Christ and so confident that we invest our future in a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Faith that Christ is powerful even when we are weak. Confident we can engage in daring things, not timidly attempting only what we can accomplish in our own strength. Faith that Christ is Redeemer. And so confident that the debt is canceled. And confident that sin's power, yes, even that besetting sin's power has been canceled at the cross. That there is a hope in fighting for renewed holiness. Faith that Christ is reconciler. Confident that every relationship, even ones that seem totally beyond repair, years beyond repair, decades beyond repair, so entrenched in hate that there's no way this could be repaired, even those relationships can be mended by the blood that restored us to fellowship with God the Father. Just want to pause there. All of these I'm taking from Colossians. Paul's going to detail them. This one in particular. You who once were alienated and hostile in mind, you have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. No relationship more broken than that. In faith, you can hope that God will restore. Finally, faith that Christ is the fountain of delights. Confident we can endure reproach, hardship, trial, persecution, the loss of all things, even our lives, by considering the reward awaiting us. And that Christ Jesus is more. At the end of Hebrews 11, the hall of faith, the author of Hebrews says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race, I would say the race of faith that is set before us. Looking to Jesus. Faith in Christ Jesus. The Founder the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider Him who endured from sinners such hostility against Himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted by your heads.